You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Thank you. So uh, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Human Plus Tech Talk uh, series uh, discussion for today. Um, I'm Blonneth Clark. I'm the Cam Fitzgerald Chair of Corporate Law uh, in uh, the Law School here in Trinity College, Dublin. And uh, I'm involved in this programme, have been for the last year and absolutely enjoying it thoroughly. And we're hoping to, to share some of the discussions and convey some of the excitement about the research that we're doing here um, in, in TCD. So Human Plus, you may be aware of it. It's a commission uh, funded um, research programme. Uh, we're bringing together uh, computer science uh, experts, experts from arts and humanities, and bringing them together with experts from enterprise. It's this which really stands out for me as making this uh, a really unique uh, programme. Uh, we're examining uh, human-centred uh, technology research. And you might say, well, what is that? You know, that's, that's, that's a very big title, and how do you unpack it? And so this is how we've been using the, the tech talk serious just to explain some of the issues we've been looking at. So, so far, um, we have heard uh, from colleagues working on AI and ethics. We've heard of, uh, from colleagues working on uh, avatars and identity and also the future of robots for everyday lives. Um, today, we're focusing on embedding human values uh, and ethical standards into AI. And I, I think this is just such an important topic and, and so timely. So in the paper today, I'm reading that it's the this week marks the first uh, human clinical trials um, of uh, a drug which is being produced to, to cure a very serious neurological illness where the entire data has been uh, identified using AI. So it gives us a really good uh, insight into the positives. But also we have concerns on the, the global front. So this week again marks uh, the acquisition of, of Twitter. Um, so these are all issues that I think we can and agree uh, need a holistic response. So uh, without any more ado, I'm going to uh, introduce uh, our uh, speakers for today. Uh, so firstly, we'll hear from the Cuban uh, Plus Fellow, um, uh, Nicola Palladino, and I'm particularly pleased to be introducing uh, Nicola's, Dave and I uh, co-supervise uh, Nicola's research. He's working on corporate governance for trustworthy and human-centric AI from principles to practice. Um, we'll be joined uh, afterwards uh, by Professor Dave Lewis from ADAPT, um, who uh, is uh, the lead and the expert in computer science uh, on all things AI related. Um, then we're delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Ken McKenzie, who's the research portfolio lead in the human science studio in Accenture. Um, and he's also um, an enterprise mentor uh, with us on this program. And, and uh, as I say, this is what makes this sort of research absolutely key and, and valuable. And then last but not least, we're joined by uh, Dr. David Phillip, uh, who's the chair of the National Mirror for AI. Um, so just a, a word or two in terms of format. Um, each of the speakers will uh, uh, present for uh, uh, about eight to 10 minutes. Um, and then we will throw the floor open for questions. So if you have any questions in advance, um, please uh, add them into the chat function and we'll do our best to get through as many as possible. Uh, we have a hard uh, deadline to, to complete by um, five to the hour. Um, so we will try and fit in as much as, as we can. So Nicola, without more ado, I'm going to hand over to you. 
I will provide just a um, brief overview about the concept of uh, trustworthy AI. And trustworthy AI in the last few years have become a very popular word, we can say a buzzword in, the, in this field. And um, the reason is easy to understand. Is also, and the first reason is because uh, trust is a key factor for adoption of uh, new technologies. And we are living in time where there is a, a great crisis of uh, trust in technology. And um, all the talk there about uh, trustworthy high reflect the concern by the governments, the, the industry, and the technical community that uh, some wave of mistrust can hinder the development and the spread of artificial intelligence uh, technologies, um, undermining the exploitation of all the benefit that this kind of technology can bring us. But uh, another kind of explanation can be also see, uh, be seen in the fact that um, uh, adopting a trustworthy AI approach is also the best way to um, uh, moving forward with a uh, um, human-centric AI. Well, and this could be um, appear more evident if we look at some definition of trust and trusted technology and trustworthiness. In by and large, trust could be defined as the willingness uh, to depend uh, on another party because of the characteristics of the party. And uh, this is what is important to understand in this kind of definition that uh, describes a relationship, a relationship when where we decide to rely to someone else, to another agent, to complete our course of action without having the full control of uh, the, the situation. But this uh, um, confidence is not based on a blind trust, on, on an act of faith. It's based on the characteristic that we see in the agent. It gives us some guarantee that uh, in the end we can complete the, our task or the end of that uh, we proposed at the beginning. Um, and it's important to underline this point because very often the notion of trustworthy AI has been criticized for that because uh, it could give the idea that we have, we have to rely on new technology without a full con knowledge, without understanding what uh, it's doing, but uh, it's not so, because as we are going to see, there are, um, um, to how um, to sustain this relation of trust uh, is needed as some characteristic and some uh, requirement unsatisfied. And so we can define trust in technology as the belief that uh, technology has the attribute necessary to perform as expected in a situation. And then I want to draw your attention also on um, the uh, definition of trustworthiness uh, that have been developed in the uh, International Standard Organization that is um, considered as the ability to meet stakeholder expectation in a verifiable uh, way. And here is um, worth noting that trustworthiness is does not describe anymore a relationship, but a property of the system that we're going to create. And well, what are these attributes that can create the uh, trust in technologies? Well, there are some basic attributes that you, we can apply to every technology from the toaster in your kitchen to an airplane. And uh, our first uh, um, attribute is the ability of functionality, this is the, capa the capability to complete the expected task. 
basically, uh, I want that my toaster actually toast my bread for breakfast. Not too much, not too little. I'll, um, and another characteristic is continuity or robustness, that is the ability to maintain its level of performance under any circumstance. And that means that I prefer if my toaster will not broke uh, one day after I bought uh, from the shopping center. No? And uh, uh, another characteristic is safety. This is the expectation that a system does not endanger human life, health, property, or the environment. And uh, hopefully that our toaster will not uh, uh, produce a fire in our apartment, <laughs> probably. And this is applied to the toaster, to the plane, of course, also for artificial intelligence. We expect artificial intelligence do what uh, they are being um, created for and exactly the kind of task with some quality standard requirement also. We want that uh, an artificial intelligence system is able to give the same level of performance, even if there is some perturbation, even if, for example, there could be some problem with the hardware that sustain the artificial intelligence system, or also if we put uh, the system in another environment and, we, and then with a different data. And of course, we want that artificial intelligence system don't endanger the autonomy and integrity of people and environment. But um, there are some further requirements that have been um, described in the uh, software engineer. Uh, as we can see, there are some of the requirements required, but there are also new requirements, such availability, security, and then. Uh, but when we talk about uh, artificial intelligence, the things are more, uh, even more complex. Because uh, artificial intelligence can challenge its trustworthiness. Um, for a serial characteristic, uh, most of, the, of them are related to the inherent socio-technical nature of artificial intelligence system. Uh, well, such an artificial intelligence system are the product of a very long and complex pipeline where we have uh, a different kind of uh, actors and stakeholders that interact with the software and the hardware. And, uh, and this was one question. Um, what is the object of our trust? We, are, uh, we rely on the product, we rely on the producer, we, uh, we rely on the develop, development process or in some component of the artificial intelligence system. And uh, another aspect to, that needs to be considered is that uh, most of the time artificial intelligence systems are used to make prediction, recommendation, or decision. But when we have decision maker, human decision maker, we are in front of uh, more urgent, and we can trust on their decision because of their uh, uh, autonomy, their competence, or their objectivity, or because they are legitimated to take this kind of decision. And, um, and the use of uh, artificial intelligence technology problematizes all this, uh, um, uh, 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 this situation. And um, uh, we have to ask to ourselves what are the kind of decisions that we can rely completely uh, uh, we can trust completely to an artificial intelligence system, and uh, what are um, the oversight mechanisms that we need to put to place in order to control uh, if the decision is correct, and also how can we find some equivalent 
uh, of uh, competencies, objectivity, and, and legitimacy for artificial intelligence system. And, uh, another uh, question arises by the unpredictability of uh, artificial intelligence system, that uh, it means that uh, uh, especially when we are talking about of neural network, uh, uh, deep learning technology, very often we don't know uh, very much what the machine in, uh, is doing. We cannot know perfectly whether the process that uh, transformed one input in a, 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 an output. And um, uh, um, sorry, this is uh, the opaqueness of artificial intelligence system. And uh, an artificial intelligence system could be explainable, but also open because uh, is, uh, we have not enough information uh, about uh, um, the decision-making process that would be done in the organization uh, about uh, uh, the, all the decision um, on the technical specification of the system. And um, then uh, artificial intelligence system pose also some question about validation verification because they are not a deterministic system. Uh, well, in, in, 90, in 2099, um, the European Commission, the expert group on artificial intelligence established by the European Commission released the uh, ethics guideline for trustworthy AI that uh, has set a group of uh, seven uh, general principles or requirements that need to be satisfied to um, realize uh, um, trustworthy artificial intelligence. And um, we can see there is a human agency oversight, technical robustness and safety, privacy and data governance, transparency, diversity, um, accountability, and social and environmental well being. Uh, well, um, uh, practitioners are still struggling to implement this kind of principle. Uh, and there are uh, many obstacles, but uh, there are also um, a lot of initiatives that have to be done to, try, uh, to start this uh, process of uh, implementation translation. We have several legislative initiatives, but we have also different standardization initiatives that have started. And uh, uh, in the last few years, we also uh, witnessed to a flourishing of uh, ethic tools that have been created to implement uh, artificial intelligence principle for trustworthy AI. Well, um, the last thing that I want to say that we are uh, going, we are moving forward to a, a hybrid governance environment for trustworthy AI, where we are trying to combine uh, general principle, what could be uh, organizational procedures, uh, and also more uh, technical solution. And the general frame is in, um, that, for example, the frame that uh, is uh, started with um, the Artificial Intelligence Act, uh, having a public regulator that set uh, some requirement for artificial intelligence system, and then we can have a standard-centered organization that creates some kind of procedures and methods uh, to verify that this characteristic um, have been realized. And then um, at team level, we can have a, a team that uses more uh, uh, practical instrument uh, 
to um, verify the property of the system. Uh, well, I think that uh, I took uh, enough and now I will leave the floor to the other guests to uh, explain to us in, uh, how this kind of process are uh, taking place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, I think you can see there just the complexity of the issues that Nicola is, is, is grappling with, but also how intriguing they are and how important and relevant they are. And, and certainly looking at this in a, in a certainly a, a time of a crisis of trust. So I'm going to turn over to, to my co-supervisor, Dave, to, to, uh, for a response and some comments. Thanks. Uh, we're just queuing up the slides there. So, you know, while we do that, I just want to celebrate. I, I, I come at this from the uh, point of view of, uh, you know, my, my, my core interest in computer science is, is knowledge engineering. So that's about how do we represent knowledge in organisations, communicate it clearly within organisations, communicate it clearly externally to organisations in a way that works both for, uh, for humans and for, you know, it can be machine readable as well okay and you know one place where you know i'm interested in clarity of communications there are very little machine readability is in the standards area so david will talk a bit more uh, about that but one of the things uh you know what's interesting to observe in that area is they're really you know we're struggling to find if you like the canonical home i think you know what nicola's research has really showed us that there's a huge amount of people who are pulling together all of these different, um, uh, you know, different guidance and standards, uh, you know, in, in this area. I mean, just to flag here, you know, we, we mentioned the uh, EU AI Act, the stuff going on in the US uh, from a legislative point of view. And these are important because, you know, they take sort of trustworthiness from just being a good idea to being law, you know, so that, that obviously accelerates our, our interest in it. With, with the emerging standards that we talk about, so we'll probably hear a bit more about SC42 under ISO IEC. There's a European version of, of that called JDC21, so you have to get to grips with this spaghetti uh, soup of uh, alphabet soup of uh, letters. There's the IEEE. There's also national bodies, you know, Germany, UK, I think are very interesting at the moment because they're, they're trying to sort of be compatible with other people's standards, but also you know, make themselves a bit more of a destination to undertake some of this uh, uh, certification. So from public bodies, uh, you know, the EU themselves, OECD, UNESCO, um, probably the most recent sort of actor now working in there, as well as, you know, a huge plethora of stuff from different organisations. And I, I think when you look at all of these together, you know, Nicholas has a really nice sort of analysis of, you know, all the different terms that are in there. You, know, you can sort of see some systemic concerns that you also see emerging in the literature itself being critical about other guidelines that are out there so you know, there's a plethora how many of these are actually workable there's a lot of papers out there talking about you know how do we go from principles to practice and, and where we're in that shift at the moment as the regulatory uh, uh, <clears throat> you know landscape becomes a bit clearer you know, we start worrying about the regulatory load versus the benefit. So, you know, we have to weigh that up and legislators have to weigh that up. There's a lot of complexities uh, actually specific to AI to do with the value chain. It's a data-driven uh, technology. So we have to understand the sort of the data value chain and that involves issues around liability that can't come into play. So we have to understand those as well. 
have to understand who's actually going to provide oversight. So to date, we've been relying on organisations doing this themselves and, you know, ask us to trust them in, in doing that. Probably not, I would say, with, you know, uh, great practice in terms of real drill down transparency in, in, in terms of the oversight processes. And also, I think, as you were pointing out, Nicola, you know, we have to really think carefully about the stakeholders who are involved. You know, trustworthiness is about, you know, satisfying stakeholders. We have to understand who that is and who they are. And this is all being done with, you know, accusations flying around about ethics washing or, you know, the usefulness or otherwise of, uh, of, of a lot of these, uh, uh, if you like, sort of voluntary standards. So, you know, we're, we're you know, we're interested in how well, will the legislation help meld these together will the the international standards help meld these together but we also have to be aware that there's divergent pressures there as well so you know from an academic point of view you know you still see you know so it's a highly interdisciplinary uh topic there's a lot of uh you know really interesting valuable insight from different uh disciplines from you know computer science all the way through to many different sort of humanities philosophy etc but I still don't see a lot of melding a lot of, of those people are sort of arguing from their their point of views there's a few nice little bits of in proper multidisciplinary work but you still break you still see you know there's a, a schism between you know the, the, the traditional academic uh, sort of cultures you know the, if you like the people who are putting out the problems and the people saying oh but we've got a solution and I'm not quite sure how many of those are meeting together and we're, there are also other emerging sort of divergent pressures. I think they're sectorial ones. So, you know, some sectors say, well, actually, we want to move ahead and, you know, in automotive or whatever it might be, say, well, we're, we're going to come up with our own way of doing this. There's technological pressures. So, you know, at the moment, there's a discussion about whether sort of perhaps some of the more general purpose AI should be treated differently to other forms of AI. And of course, there's going to be a, a jurisdictional uh, set of pressures. So, you know, if we go back to saying, well, what, what would we, how can we actually break this down and analyze, you know, this very, very, very complicated uh, and pressurized uh, situation? And I think one of the things, as I say, I'm interested in is this sort of flow of information, clarity information, consistency of information. So, you know, the first thing, you know, usually when we work in standards, we're interested in how do, how do uh, organizations in the value chain communicate with each other? That, that, that's really important. And, you know, we have various models out there. You know, this is sort of a typical one based on OECD. So you've got people who provide data, people who actually develop AI models, machine learning models, people who put those in applications and the people who use those applications. But, you know, to really understand trustworthiness, we have to understand the social context we're, we're working in. And then within that, we have to understand, well, okay, who are the actors who are involved in oversight? So there are people who are doing stuff, building things, you know, trying to produce uh, value and people who provide oversight. So that's oversight both within organizations, ethics committees, managers, uh, quality specialists, risk specialists, compliance specialists, and then external oversight, which isn't quite there yet, but is, is emerging with, with the regulation, uh, you know, which we already see in data protection, but we would see you know, in future going forward with the, uh, for example, the AI Act in, in Europe. And this is the typical model of co-regulation that we use whenever we're, you know, introducing a, a technology that society wants to, to regulate. And then we also have to understand who are the affected stakeholders. So there are some of them are in this, you know, they're workers, users, the data subjects who are involved in this value chain, but also we can impact or people who are outside of the value chain who are not using any of these products, but perhaps their credit rating is affected or, or whatever that might be. And what we're 
you know, in my research, at least what we're interested in is what is the communication that goes on between the oversight authorities and the affected stakeholders? For sure, the value, people in the value chain need to be involved, but there needs to be, the you know, trust ultimately is between the people who are enforcing the rules and the people who are hoping the rules are being enforced in, in their benefit. So we're interested in, well, what signals do the oversight mechanisms send that help build trust, you know, from the people who are affected? And perhaps going beyond that, what affordances does oversight uh, involve? You know, is there mechanisms for complaint or redress, or even just contributing to the to the appreciation of what the what the risks are when we're talking about uh, you know a, a wide range of sort of fundamental rights? So this is a big spaghetti diagram again to sort of more convey the complexity than to sort of provide useful information. This is transposing a little bit what's in the AI Act. The big sort of octagon in the middle is. You know, that's an AI provider of the future that will have to conform to the AI Act. And to do that, it will need a quality management system. Okay, quality management system will be typically something that comes from one of the ISO uh, standards. There's a there's a, a template for management systems that are st standardized in many areas, security, general sort of software quality. And we're working on one for uh, uh, AI management systems. And the important thing to know here is essentially it's something we're very familiar from organizational governance. It's a it's a learning loop. Okay, so you're doing all the things you'd expect to do, sort of risk management, putting in resources, doing the thing you're doing, building AI, whatever it might be, but then also auditing it and monitoring uh incident reports. And the idea is you're doing risk assessment, but you you understand that your risk assessment is probably going to be incomplete and you're gonna to have to learn as you go along. There'll be things that you miss. And the regulatory environment that especially the use AI Act is built around that sort of model. So it's a it's a risk management model. And in that you've got people who, <clears throat> well, the idea is that you do your risk assessment according to your quality management system. And if it's sufficiently low risk, you get a C mark. You could give that to yourself or you could go to a, a conformance assessment body who, who will do that for you. Uh, and then you've got market surveillance authorities who can find you or take your products off the market, two sort of classes of, of oversight. And actually in the AI Act, you know, apart from seeing these CE marks and perhaps seeing a particular application is on a high-risk database or perhaps is removed from the market or fined, there's not a lot of signals out there. And there's actually very little in the way of, you know, if you like affected stakeholders engaging in that regulatory process because it's typically been based around sort of health and safety. And you know, to give a bit of an idea, you know, there's a number of application areas where there's already conformity assessments who are now also going to have to look at AI and not just looking at AI for health and safety, but also for your fundamental rights and your 54 EU fundamental rights on market surveillance. Again, you need to understand all of that. You have to do that in each of the 27 member states and you, you have to do it for all these new areas of high risk as well. So there's a very complicated space. And so just to sort of wrap up, I want to say, well, you know, it's great that this, you know, we're, we're using this sort of learning loop, this learning management system within the organizations, but we need to think about where else do we need that? So certainly the regulators need to be learning and there's some mechanisms in the AI Act for how they should all communicate to each other. And hopefully be like we see with GDPR, they'll learn over time and improve guidance. But we also need to think about, well, where are these, these signals being transmitted from oversight? So should we be expecting more transparency? And there's mechanisms such as regulatory sandboxes in the AI that allow us to experiment with these to actually you know, better understand and communicate with side in general affected stakeholders 
about the nuts and bolts of risk assessments. You know, are we really catching things? And also on the incident reporting side, you know, again, is this something that's going to be completely an internal technocratic mechanism or will we put some of these incident reports in the public domain in a way that, you know, there can be some societal debate about it? So there are some sort of things I think missing from the AI Act and, you know, don't naturally fall out of the standardisation either, but they probably do need a little bit of attention. Can we use some of the existing mechanisms that are being developed but just strive to make them a little bit more open, perhaps not completely open, but perhaps within regulatory sandboxes. So people who are going to benefit by talking to each other, affected stakeholders, the, the vendors, their suppliers, their users, and the regulators can experiment and learn a bit. Because I think certainly we don't know all the answers right now, and we need to have a safe way of learning what the answers will be. Thank you. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. I, I think that was just excellent. Just to, to do that sort of deep dive, I think it gives us all an idea of just the, the scope of this research and the ambitious, you know, nature of it. And also, you know, key issues coming up again and again in terms of uh, verification and measurement um, and transparency. Um, but also this multidisciplinary uh, nature of, of this work. Um, and one thing, for example, that, that, that Nicola and Dave and I have found in sitting down is that we are all speaking a slightly different language because we come from different backgrounds. And again, it's really important to understand that and to, to form a sort of a common level that, as Dave said, we can explain to others in terms of the regulation. Um, one of the issues as well is, is making sure that what we have is workable in terms of the, uh, the principles to practice. And this is where our industry partner is so essential. Uh, this is, you know, this the the, the value that Accenture and, and, and uh, Ken bring to our work is is just impossible to to underestimate. So, Ken, I'm going to, to turn over to you perhaps for for some comments on this. Sure. Okay. So, um, I'm not going to do any slides, which is probably goes against all known rules of management consulting, but. <laughs> I'm here to talk about this idea of, it's actually set up in the introduction, this idea of how do we get, I would say, a human understanding into what can be done with AI and understanding maybe some limits around AI. I'm going to begin with the idea that humans need guidance. Experts might prefer guidance or proffer guidance, but humans need guidance. So I'm talking about citizens. I mean, people who, who don't have postgraduate qualifications for the most part citizens need guidance around this new thing that we're being told is going to get ever more powerful. I'm going to begin with saying, I think sometimes what we describe as AI isn't AI. And I'm not an AI developer and have no computer science background. But I, as a citizen, I've read maybe three major cases where we are told AI has gone wrong. And it's how it's reported in good quality journalism, I would say. One is the use of fraud detection software by Royal Mail with postmasters and postmistresses in the UK. The second is ProPublica's account of using predictive police analytics in the US that showed up an ethnic disparity in rating of likelihood of reoffending. And then I would say the other one is possibly or probably the Netherlands government case of detecting social welfare fraud among claims. I'm not really sure that any three of those are AI. They may just be large end data sets with some statistics on them. Did the system learn 
from those things and go in and make more kind of high 2000 errors? Or was it simply a large end data set with some insertions on it? I'm not really sure. And I think sometimes, I'm not saying academics do this because I don't think that's happening, but I do think that industry and some oversell things being AI when they may not be AI. And actually ask a professional statistician for the kind of dinner party jokes they have around people getting mistakes around AI. It's like, we have had credit scores long before we've had AI. How are those credit scores arrived at? We've had insurance weightings long before AI. How are those insurance weightings arrived at? Large end data sets with some inferential statistics. So that's the first thing. Humans tend to get genuinely scared by the new, but I would just say there's an element of old wine and new bottles with AI. I'm not saying that's completely the case, but when you think the large end data set idea with statistics added onto it, how it affects people's lives, that continuity remains. My second idea is that in order for humans to really understand AI, and I include like senior decision makers in government and senior business leaders, they probably need signals. They need cognitive anchors that they can genuinely understand. And I actually think going back to what Dave Lewis just demonstrated there, you get this clash of systems and sets of initials and codes. And none of, none of them are in any way wrong-headed or deviant, but it's, it's quite headache-inducing to think what will take precedence and where, and where will we get clarity. I think that in order for humans to gain clarity, they need to rely on very old institutions to filter the world of AI for them. A really old institution they will need is the court system. We probably still do not have that single court case that says AI was used here, here were its assumptions. Those assumptions are flawed. Here were the consequences in these people's lives that would not have arisen if that AI system hadn't been in place. And therefore we need to think of this, this and this. I think that would serve as a magnet on iron filings to focus developers, and I mean that in the larger sense, developers' attention on what they should actually do when they're building and testing their models. We probably need a court opinion. I'm not saying tax law works, but we know when we're breaking tax law. I'm not saying AI law will work, but we will know when we are breaking it in certain jurisdictions. And we need, I think, these, I don't know, Blanin probably, I'm sure is about 10 now. We need this critical juncture decision where we can say, oh, because of that statement, we now know this to be true for the US or for the EU or for Ireland, whatever. I think the second ancient institution humans need to give them a cognitive anchor is democracy. Just because it's hard to understand doesn't mean we don't need human input on it. Now, I think what's unfortunate is that the world of expertise can be ambivalent about bringing in human input. In some cases, if you bring in humans that think stuff that does not make sense, I'm using that in a very guided way, but around things like, for example, the development of vaccines, you've got to be incredibly careful about how you use human input. Yes, you can consult, but to what extent does ordinary citizen input become veto power? I think we have to be incredibly careful about that. How can humans input on, you know, statistical models, I'm just going to use that term, and I, that to be honest, probably most people will simply not understand. We know from work by people like Gerd Gigerenza that people find even compound interest calculations incredibly hard. What are they going to do with statistical models on this scale? But I still think we need to explain things to people. We probably need citizen jury type exercises. I know Essex County Council 
in the UK, Essex Council is working with the police force and Essex University on explaining how they're using data as they go around building new models. We probably need citizens' juries, I mean, we need senior legislators in them as well, to understand the difference of normative and descriptive AI. So if there are imbalances in society, AI cannot undo those imbalances. Some people say it can. It can reflect them or exacerbate them. I don't think it can undo them. That's my view, and others will disagree. I don't think it can make things better unless you choose to make them better, which you don't need AI for. You can just legislate. You don't need AI to make things better. Just make them better. So I think we need democracy, and we don't need democracy in going back to the legal sense to, to set the legislation. We need democracy to kick the ideas around the room. What is, it, what is possible with AI? What's implausible with AI? What's good and what's bad about it? I think the third thing we need to consider then is another ancient institution, which is where can universities help? I remember years ago hearing the first time of where they introduced problem-based learning, was it being introduced into Trinity College? So growth simplification, instead of just studying the basic sciences and then getting the pathology, you look at the pathology and use your basic sciences to get into the problem as well. Now that's a probably, that is a growth simplification, but let's run with it. But I think, I don't hear enough clear descriptions of what are the problems with AI we're trying to solve. And are those, some of those problems solvable? Are they just the nature of the beast? For example, large statistics will show social, social class disparities, irrespective of whether you use AI, AI on them or not. I think we need problem-based learning. We need to get people together. For example, will doctors be sued in 10 years' time for uncritically accepting an AI-recommended therapy because they don't understand the calculus behind which was made to make that happen? Is that going to be a new version of Bolam's Law? Are we expecting doctors to become machine interpreters or not? I think we need to go right back to the university system and look at how we train computer scientists, how we train sociologists. And they're going to have to talk to each other and others as well. And I, I don't actually know if the university timetable lends itself to this. Hackathon, which is an, its own loaded term, is probably the closest we get to it. I don't, I'm not sure you can train people in the ways required to genuinely get the distinction of here's what's possible with AI, here's where can it go wrong, and here's where it can't undo existing societal problems. I think that normative descriptive tension and the techniques used to understand those and the maths used to build them, I'm genuinely not sure we can get a perfect dialogue around those. But we need to work harder. We need probably four-hour classes and lecture theatres and six-hour labs rather than 50 minutes of double sessions. And that's a, again, that's a very granular suggestion, but I think we need to see those things. So in short, I don't think we're going to make much progress here unless we use ancient institutions to help humans understand very complicated things. Very clever humans did not understand the maths model behind the financial crash. Very clever humans did not understand that the airborne spread versus the other ways of explaining COVID. We, we, we don't really understand those things plainly. We're going to have to rely on the court system, citizens coming together, and the universities to help shine light on what can be done. Thank you. That's, that's, that's fantastic. I think you've given us so much to think of, both in terms of our research project, but also in terms of universities and, and what we are really here to do, um, but also identified some of the issues. 
uh, for the students uh, listening, you're probably still reeling at the idea of four-hour lectures. <laughs> 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 there, there, there's a benefit to be had. So there, I, I have a, I, I do have a couple of uh, queries on that, but let me pick them up afterwards, particularly on the courts. I just can't let that one go, yeah. uh, as you expected. Yeah. Uh, so uh, may I turn to our final speaker, David, um, to, sure. to, 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 <clears throat> to discuss some of his research and his work in terms of standardization. So I will do a slide share, but I, I, I realize I will not use uh, much of this uh, actually in the end because I will try rather to react on what, uh, what the other speaker said. Uh, I totally agree with what can say here. You know, like um, um, a lot of things are blamed on AI, you know, like bias, etc. But that's not AI. Uh, this is systemic issues that were uh, created in decades, uh, hundreds of years, and you, you you can't just automatically resolve things. Yeah, oh, forbid bias; it will be automatically fixed. That just doesn't make sense. You know that that's not the thing. Uh, so, um, and I will. I totally agree that these uh, the courts uh, will play a very important role because uh, th there is this new new thing uh, that Dave mentioned. Yeah, uh, regulation so far was very simplistic. It was one-dimensional. You know, how many people does it kill? Yeah, we, we will not let it uh, do, you know, if it kills more than X. And that's one-dimensional, that's so easy. But now there are 49 fundamental rights. But the fundamental rights are a system. They, they are in, in inverse relations, uh, relationships to each other, you know, like, you cannot maximize one over the other. You cannot uh, maximize protection of life against protection of free speech or privacy or democracy or you know manipulating elections, things like that. So uh, you know when when the European legislator comes to my uh, technical committee and says, and by the way, AI must not violate human rights. That's total nonsense. That's no. That's no task. You know, uh, that's not solvable. They are throwing the problem over the wall. You know, uh, but we are not stupid enough to accept it. You know, <laughs> because we know uh, technical committees are not supposed to uh, make political uh, decisions. Uh, you know, the, the fact that the politician or 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 bureaucrat asks the committee uh, to solve the uh, business or political issue, that shows how little they know about it, but it doesn't make it a valid task for, uh, for a technical committee. Yeah. So sorry for kind of bashing the <laughs> task giver, but this is unfortunately the, the fact, you know, the AI Act is very much uh, immature. We, we are doing our best in technical committees to answer, to, to respond, to, uh, to provide support for the upcoming um, regulation. But there needs to be dialogue, there needs to be understanding. You know? There needs to be understanding that there are uh, relationship uh, between concepts that are to be standardized. Uh, just a few anecdotal examples, like for instance, um, uh, the AI Act uh, requests that human oversight is standardized. Uh, that's another, well, th that task is not impossible, but the problem is the current state of the art in the international standardization or even academia 
doesn't agree what what does it mean human oversight right because um, you know the the reason why we are employing these technologies call them ai or something else is because they have superhuman capability and uh, that means uh, human usually isn't able to control them in real time so uh, I, I am chairing a group, international group. Uh, they've mentioned some of the alphabet soup here, JTC1 SC42, working group three, trustworthiness. That's my group, you know, I chair it, 15 projects on trustworthiness. Um, one of them is controllability. And this is how you put a human understandable interface on a superhuman system to make sure that the human can uh, well, that there can be accountability that, uh, that, you, uh, that humans can exert efficient control over the system, even though the system is superhuman. And this is the reason why we, why we do employ the system, because if it wasn't superhuman, why, why, why we would be using it, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, another anecdotal thing, uh, AI uh, draft regulation, uh, requires AI systems to have emergency stop button. And now uh, that even just with what, what, what I just said, it doesn't make sense, right? Because uh, the reaction of the, of the health device people, uh, this is absolutely stupid. If you put, uh, if you put uh, emergency stop button on a, on a, um, a laser surgery device, uh, the human can only do harm. The human cannot uh, interrupt the procedure in a in a way that could be anyway and beneficial. So uh, oversight. We, we have another preliminary project that is called oversight. But this oversight project uh, waits basically for the controllability project to become stable, technically stable. And it is looking at those things. You know, like the question was. What do we actually trust? You know, do we trust this box? But it's not about the box. You know, it's not about what the box does in real time because I am not even able to observe the state of the box in real time. Uh, the the oversight needs to spread over over the life cycle and the life cycle in the broadest sense: inception, uh, retirement. You know, when when it gets dangerous, it has to be retired. So so the oversight. Uh, it's very simplistic, naive, and impossible to assume that the oversight can can happen uh, in real time. So I have a huge slide deck. I'm going to, <laughs> to use it because it's I, I'm I'm just reacting, you know. But the slide deck can can be made available for for the people, you know, why international standards international standards are you know consensus achieved by international organizations on the global level. They, the uh, the benefit is that it's uh, you know unique consensus you know you can be sure that there is no other uh, no no other uh, authoritative opinion on that worldwide so that's why you do worldwide standards uh, they they are um, created according to world trade organization principles uh, the big three organizations are ISO IEC and ITU. Uh, ISO and IEC together, uh, they have uh, uh, they have uh, JTC1. This is the only joint committee between ISO and IEC. And this is where you standardize horizontal technology. AI is such a horizontal technology. 
So this is the European setup, you know, the, the European agencies, Sensenelec and Etsy, they are mirroring the big three uh, worldwide organizations. So I think that's, that's enough. Yeah. I, I work in standardization. I am trying to, you know, respond. But it wouldn't make sense to go any deeper. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I, I think you have given us huge food for thought there. Um, so just excellent presentations. Uh, um, I'm going to, to uh, check the, uh, the chat function, but uh, just as I do, could I just um, uh, abuse my privilege and just ask one question? Um, since the last two speakers mentioned the, the importance of the courts in this respect, and you know the the ability to take assumptions and look at the consequences. And I wondered what impediments you see to that, because when I look at that, I can see lots. So you mentioned uh, one of those, David, in terms of, you know, like technical committees, the courts aren't there to make political decisions. They're just there to, yeah. to, to, to do their job. So it strikes me, and, and I had this conversation with a, a senior counsel recently in terms of ethics. So what the court will do in a case like this is they will hear expert evidence and it all depends on what those experts do. Because if those experts take a, a poor decision or a poorly formulated decision, that will be embedded into the decision. Um, and that precedent which goes forward, the, the decision can be challenged, but no one will ever unpick the evidence um, to see what was there. And, and that is going to be a huge problem if you get to the wrong uh, <laughs> If I may, like I, I don't, I don't think there is impediment. I think there is a certain um, false sense of urgency. You know, these things work in a due time, and it takes time until uh, until a case makes it to the constitutional court, and when yeah. everything will be heard and decided. And not only and uh, for, for such a complex system as the system of fundamental rights. Not even the politicians can presume that they uh, mm. they know what is the right balance. You know uh, this mm. this will and I think the danger now is in this uh, impatience. You know pushing the uh, regulation too fast. Now I, I am of course uh, big uh, corporation whatever, but uh, the thing is if if you push uh, if you push a regulation too fast. It becomes ethics washing. It, it, it becomes an empty flag that will undermine trust and not create trust. You know? And that, that, what, what uh, uh, corporate, of course, in uh, industry, big corporations uh, are uh, important stakeholder in international standardization. But the fact that they say, oh, th this regulation might go slower mm. it's not necessarily evil yeah. you know it, it's not it's it, you know we, we could regulate only what is understood what is measurable and those are those are the dependencies you know like the my, my um, as i mentioned my group my trustworthiness group there is 15 projects on various trustworthiness characteristics uh, again you know uh, it doesn't make sense to tell a technical committee by the way don't violate fundamental rights that doesn't make sense mm. the same way it doesn't make sense by the way, be trustworthy because trustworthiness is some 15 characteristics, and for different systems, there, there might be different thresholds. Different characteristics might be relevant. It, uh, this is what uh, Nicola mentioned. You know, like we are trying to make uh, trustworthiness a property, measurable objective property of a system, not to rely on the on the relationship. 
because in the end we are not psychologists we we don't we don't decide what makes people trust you know uh, very very often those are irrational things that that make them really trust things but what we care is really objective thresholds of you know does it fail uh two percent of time or 0.2 percent of time you know the, these things we can measure and that's what we are trying to achieve and we are trying to avoid making political or even judicial decisions that's not our place and did you want to add that? I, I think yeah i'd agree with the idea that i think we're rushing towards finding uh, a set of tablets we can use to interpret things and i, I think that's misplaced i'm also interested i think sooner or later courts have and like to me this is a problem around statistics so there's stuff around you know i think oliver wendell holmes did a case on judging whether something was a forged signature based on the likelihood it could be forged i'm sure there were massive debates around the admissibility of dna evidence and what is the likelihood that that's not that person on trial who who left that sample i think this is about how how courts interpret statistics i think it's going to take a long time before we get it right but i think they will need to do it first yeah and i think they'll need a lot of help dave yeah i'm just gonna make the point as well is you know we need to be aware that this you know the ai act you know it, it's you know it's sort of a product safety regulation and it's you know the new age framework it's about you know being able to have products that you can sell across the the single market so you know, with those three little words and fundamental rights, you know, they seem to open the door massively. But on the other hand, what they're really saying is, well, your product shouldn't uh, contravene any of the existing regulation yeah. about yeah. price. It doesn't say yeah. you have to go away and reason yeah. about fundamental rights. You have to be aware of the legislation that's relevant in the sector that you're, uh, you know, in your operating. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's you know, it may not be a, a, an accurate assumption, especially people who are sort of interested in sort of AI ethics, that this is going to solve any of those problems because, you know, you're, you you may come up with a few new mechanisms for breaching rights that exist, that are protected by existing regulations. That That's what you'll be tested. Uh, you probably will, will come up with new ways of having to trade off between rights, okay? But again, I don't think the AI Act is going to give you the ground to solve that. That sort of stuff tends to get solved more at a national level because actually, you know, you know, the reason we have rights is because they're the things we can agree on. You know, what's more difficult to agree on is how they all interact with each other. And that often is has to be done more in a sort of local jurisdictional and cultural uh, basis. So, you know, I, I think if we're, we're hoping the AI Act will result in a lot of course cases that will tell us how to deal with sort yeah. of ethics and AI, we're probably, oh, yeah, I agree well, with that. we may not be disappointed, but we'll be waiting a long we're time. We're waiting a long time. Yeah. Okay, well, lawyers will like that idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>